Dear Father, we thank you for the gift of eternal life. We thank you for your testimony to it. We thank you that we can trust every word that you have given us. We thank you uh, that we, when we put our trust, when we put our faith in you, you secure us eternally. So we praise you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right, you may all be seated. As you may have uh, noticed in the scripture reading, the title of this sermon actually came pretty easily since John repeats the title in his uh, little discourse there six different times. The testimony, the testimony, the testimony, it gets a little redundant. And so we want to know what exactly is that testimony and can we trust it? The main idea of the message this morning is that God testifies not only to our salvation, but to the quality, security, and eternality of that gift. It is not pious, humble, or wise to question your position in Christ. It is arrogant and foolish to look to one's fruit, feelings, or even the quality of one's own fickle faith. It is the object of faith that saves. And so as John is very near ending his little letter to the Ephesian church, it was probably read by all the churches there in Asia Minor, he wants to assure them of their salvation. He's coming off of his words on the triumph or the victory of faith that they have overcome. 1 John 5, 5 asks this rhetorical question, who is the one who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Remember, just a verse prior, he said, whatever is born of God overcomes the world. This is the only way to overcome the world is having your source in God. Remember that there is the Antichrist world system, the cosmos, and then there is God's kingdom, God's system. And you have your source in either one or the other. You are located in one or the other, and you act by means of one or the other. And so whatever is born of God overcomes the world. If we are born of God, there's already a victory won. 1 John 5, 1 says, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. We stand securely in that finished victory. We have already overcome the world because Christ overcame the world and positionally we are in him because we have put our faith in him. Just as John 16, 33, notice where this comes in the book of John. John 14, 15, 16 is all the upper room discourse. Jesus teaching his disciples about abiding in fellowship with him. And this is the very last words he gives to them in that discourse. He says, these things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. Take courage, I have overcome the world. Remember 1 John 4.17 where he's trying to give us assurance, confidence. He says, as he is, so also are we in the world. This is a positional truth, an identity truth. We are identified with Christ in his death and burial and resurrection. Whatever is true of Jesus, when God looks at us, he sees us through that lens. He sees us positionally secure in Jesus Christ. Jesus has successfully rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. 
This is a finished and final fact. And it began at the first victory that we experienced, which is the victory over unbelief. You see, Satan is the God of this world because he rules over the hearts of those who God gave this world to, mankind. The fall happened because Satan convinced Adam and Eve that God was a liar and that he was telling the truth. And ever since, he's had this sway over the hearts of mankind. This is his kingdom of darkness. And in 2 Corinthians 4.3, Paul is talking to the Corinthian church about their victory through faith and why it is that some do not believe when the message is preached. And so he says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. You see, you having life are not veiled from the truth. It's right here. It's present. It's in the book. And when you read it, the Holy Spirit can work to make it understandable to you. But for those who do not believe when they open up this book, it's just words. It doesn't have the meaning that it has to us because Satan is ruling in their hearts. He is blinding them from receiving the message. The first victory that's going to happen is by the ministry of the Holy Spirit as he convicts them of sin, righteousness, and judgment. They will come to believe in this conquering that happens by means of the Holy Spirit is faith. So if it is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Every single person sitting here, every single person who will ever listen to this recording has at one point been under the ministry of the Holy Spirit to unbelievers. Every single person has felt his ministry of conviction, of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And it's my belief that everyone sitting in this room today has already had this victory over the kingdom of darkness has already yielded to that convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit and seen this light that came into the world, the light that was Jesus Christ, and put their trust in him rather than in themselves, who called Satan a liar rather than God. 1 John 5, 4 says, Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. This is, again, a gnomic arist. You'll remember from last week that that just means this is a timeless truth. In any and all circumstances, it is trust in God that overcomes the world. At faith, initial faith, which justifies us before God, which secures us eternally in the double grip of God the Father and Christ his Son. This victory comes by faith. Any subsequent victories over this world must also come by faith. We're not saved by one means and sanctified by another. We are saved, sanctified, and glorified. We have our hope set in the future. This is faith. This is hope in the promises of God. So he who, be- or he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God... 
Now God's going to start talking about his witnesses to a specific fact. This section of verses gets a pretty wide variety of interpretations because John is a little coy about the content of this testimony. In fact, he waits until verse, I think it's 11, to even tell you what this testimony is. He tells you all the evidence, all of the things that testify to this testimony, but he doesn't tell you what the testimony is until verse 11. In verse 6, he says this, being Jesus, the Son of God, this is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. Now notice this phrase, the one who came. This was an important title for Christ during the gospel period. He was the one that they expected to come. And sure enough, he did come. John 6, 14, therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, and they said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into this world. They had an expectation. They anticipated Christ's arrival. In John 11, when Jesus is talking to Martha about her brother who has died, when he's telling her that he is going to raise him from the dead before she expects Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life, and he who believes in me will live, even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Her response reveals her faith. She said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. These titles are all in opposition to one another. You can draw big equal signs between them all. She believes that all of these things are true of the person Jesus, that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the one they expected to come, that this man standing before her is the Son of God, and that he is the one who comes into the world. This is a title for the expected Messiah. So John can say, he is the one who is to come, that is Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ. But his phraseology here seems to get a little bit clunky. He says, by water and blood. Now this is something he hasn't mentioned before. And that tends to make us a little uncomfortable when they use symbols or signs. We want to have a clear understanding of what those mean. We don't like ambiguity. We like a solid answer to set our feet on. So that's what we're going to look for is what does this mean? blood and water mean? Once again, there is any number of interpretations of this. I've chosen only the five most common and two which I think are the best, but one that I have settled on. He comes by water and blood. The first and possibly the most classical interpretation of this is that it is believer's baptism and the sacrament of communion. This is not a very good interpretation. The problem here is especially in the identification of the blood as communion. One simple explanation of why this is a bad interpretation is that the communion wine represents blood. So now we have blood representing wine representing blood. This doesn't make any sense. 
But the other problem is there is the complete absence of the body. There's no mention of the bread here. See, communion isn't just taking the wine, it's taking the body of Christ as well. And so this is most likely not baptism and communion. In fact, if I had to give this a percentage of possibility, I'd probably rank somewhere in between 0 and 1%. I would have to be very oblivious to any good reasoning as to why this would mean baptism and communion. The next is cleansing and salvation. The water might mean cleansing from sins and the blood might mean salvation. But here's the issue that back in the second chapter of John, or first John, he uses blood as the symbol of cleansing and the symbol of salvation. Once again, it is by faith in the sacrifice of Christ, his blood, that we have both salvation and sanctification, both salvation and continual cleansing. The issue here is that it ignores the argument of the text, and this is also true of the previous one. Notice that these are all directed towards the believer. Believer's baptism, the sacrament of communion, the cleansing of the believer, the salvation of the believer, is all believer-centric. But this is Christocentric. It is surrounding Christ. It is not the believer who came by water and blood. It is Christ. He is the one who came by water and blood, and this particle that is translated by here means literally through. Jesus Christ did not come through believer's baptism and communion. He did not come through cleansing and salvation. Now, he came for cleansing and salvation, but that's not what the text says. That's not what John's argument is. The next one, and this isn't as popular, but I'm surprised that it's not because there's actually textual uh, linkage this might be linked with, but this is that uh, the blood and water might represent the blood and water that poured out of the side of Christ. Now, I don't think this is what the text is saying, but back in John 19.34, this is why some people go here. But the one soldier pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. Now, this is evidence in that text that Jesus did die. It's important to the record of the Gospel of John that Jesus bled both water and blood because this proved that he had died already. He essentially drowned in his own, uh, in his own fluids. The problem is that this is evidence for his death, and it is not germane to John's argument. It's true. The blood mixed with water is evidence of his death. That's not what John's talking about. Now, this was my favorite interpretation, but I sadly proved myself wrong. I guess that's not sad, but it's, it's good when you prove yourself wrong, because hopefully then you come to a better understanding. This is traditionally the one that I held to, that the water meant the incarnation, natural birth, and that the blood meant the crucifixion of Christ, his physical death. Now, I like this because John has put a lot of effort into telling us about the incarnation of Christ and its importance. Also, this is the same symbol that Christ used for natural birth back in John 3, 5. 
Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you that unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. So water is flesh birth, and spirit is spirit birth. And in 1 John 4, 2, he says, Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. 1 John does have within its context the incarnation. So this seems at first that it may fit. But that's not the issue of the immediate context. The, the immediate context is dealing with the messiahship of Christ. And for this, we look to baptism. Not to believers' baptism, but to Christ's baptism, his identification with Israel, his identification with those whom he would come to save, the identification with his office. 1 John 5, 6 says this is Jesus the Christ. Christ means Messiah. It's just the Greek word for the Hebrew word, Messiah. 1 John 5, 1, beginning the context, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ. Not that he came in the flesh, we believe that too, but John's dealing with Jesus' messiahship. The one who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. It was at his baptism where God testified that Jesus was his beloved Son. In Matthew 3.13, Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus, answering, said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. Jesus has a purpose for his baptism, and it is different than the purpose for those who were baptized alongside Christ. For them, it was a baptism of repentance from their sins as national Israel. But for Jesus, it was identification with those sinners. So that in his righteousness, those who are identified with him might be made righteous. Matthew 3.16, after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him, and behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So John, in his text, is dealing with the testimony of God, and he is dealing with the Messiahship of Jesus. Jesus is the Christ, he is the Son of God, naturally, he is pointing to Christ's baptism that confirmed him in his office of Messiah. 1 John 1.29, John writes, or yeah, John writes about the other John, the next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said after me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel. Remember, manifested means made visible. I came baptizing in water. This was the very purpose for John's baptism, was that he would point to the Messiah. Those who were being baptized were baptized expecting the Messiah to come. John's whole purpose was to identify who that man was. 
Those baptized by John were not ignorant of the fact that they were waiting to whomever he would point. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. So the water represents Jesus' baptism, a confirmation that he is the Messiah and that God identified him as such. And the blood represents his crucifixion, the fulfillment of God's purpose for him on earth in his first advent. Hebrews 9.22 says, according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood and without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Remember what John said, why Jesus came. He came to take away the sins of the world. You need him to be the Messiah. He can't be just any old man. And you need him to do the will of God, to die for mankind. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as a high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer ever since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So Hebrews 12.24 says to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and that's the covenant that we have been brought in alongside. This is the new covenant. This is where we have regeneration. To the sprinkled blood, the blood of Christ, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Now this is a testimony. God's going to say that the water, the blood, and the spirit are all a testimony Blood is, in fact, a testimony. In fact, we see this principle all the way back in Genesis 4, where Abel's blood cries out for vindication, and Jesus' blood is the answer. So Jesus is the Messiah. He is able to substitute himself for mankind because he is a man, and he is sufficient because he is the Son of God. He is not just any old man who could only die for himself in just punishment for himself. But this is a man who sinless died for everyone else. And his life does not substitute for just one other person, not for just 10 other people, but for the sins of the entire world. He took upon himself because he could and because it was God's will that he did. Now, why does John need to remind us that it is by water and by blood? It's specifically because of his present context in Ephesus. The issues that he is writing to counteract. And this is the Gnostic heresy. It's been about four months since we talked about this, so hopefully you remember. But we'll look at one of those major actors, and this was the heretic Serenthus. He was a flagrant opponent of John. In fact, Irenaeus writes many of the situations that he and John had. One being that John wouldn't even enter into the same bathhouse as this man. He ran out as soon as Serenthus came in, asking God to tumble down the whole building on Serenthus because he was a heretic. 
Serinthus was a public opponent of John, and his gospel was a public, in public opposition to John's. The difference was John was an apostle of Christ, and Serinthus was not. Serinthus lived from 50 to 100 AD, right around the time of John, in the city of Ephesus, where John was the pastor. He was a proto-Gnostic, that means that his beliefs turned into what we knew as Gnosticism in the 2nd and 3rd century. And he was a heretic whom Irenaeus wrote about. Now, what was his gospel? It's actually pretty simple. He believed that the man Jesus, that fleshly person that people saw and interacted with, that John interacted with, and the divine Christ spirit, the Messiah, were two distinct beings. In other words, he did not believe in the hypostatic union. He did not believe that Jesus was both man and God. He believed that the divine Christ descended on the man Jesus after his baptism. And that this is what we see in the testimony of the Spirit and of God, that that was the impartation of this messianic spirit onto this natural man. And he also believed that the divine Christ departed from the man Jesus before the crucifixion. He believes that this possibly occurred either in the garden of, uh, in the uh, Mount of Olives the night before, or else immediately before his crucifixion. Either way, he believes that the man who was baptized was a man and not God, and that Christ only came afterwards. And he believes that the man who died on the cross was not God, but that the Spirit of God had departed from him before he died. In other words, Serinthus does not believe that Christ was both crucified and baptized. He believes that only Jesus the man was. So John is saying, this is the one who came. He is the Messiah. He came through water and blood, both the man, Jesus, and Christ as one person. He did not come with water only, but with water and with the blood. We also have the Spirit's testimony. In the second half of verse 6, it says, It is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. Now these hearken back to John's words in the upper room. When he's, or to Jesus' words in the upper room, he says, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. And you will testify also because you have been with me from the beginning. Now, there's two sides to this statement. The Spirit is going to testify, and the apostles are going to testify. The, test, the apostles testify by means of the Spirit. This is really one truth here. John 16, 12. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth. This is a truth for the apostles. This is why we trust in the apostles. We don't trust in the words of just any man. If it contradicts what the apostles say, we don't believe it. Because the Spirit was specifically to give this ability to the apostles. To be guided into all truth so that they could record it so that we could have all truth recorded for us. 
When the Spirit of Truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. At the beginning of this discourse, Jesus had told them, These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, while he was present with them. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. The very fact that we have scripture is a testimony of the Holy Spirit. He is the one who inspired the apostles and all of the prophets to write. In fact, 2 Peter 1.20 tells us this specifically. It says, Know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So here's the issue. Serinthus is a man speaking as a man. John the Apostle is a man speaking with the promise from Jesus directly that the Spirit would confirm his testimony. That it was not John's words that John would give, but the Spirit's. So when Serinthus testifies, he testifies for man. But when John testifies, he testifies on behalf of God. 1 John 5, 7 and 8 says there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And the three are all in agreement. The scriptures tell us about Jesus' identification in his baptism about his work in Calvary. And all of these things point to the very fact that Jesus is the Christ. This statement that all three are in agreement is literally, the three are into one. They all become one. This is a single testimony to the person of Jesus Christ. Now there is a textual variant that might be troublesome for some of you. Textual variant is when something in the manuscripts differs from other manuscripts. If you have the New King James Bible or the King James Bible, there will be an additional one and a half sentences in your Bible. In those Bibles, this verse reads, there are three that testify in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one, and there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement. Now, this is almost certainly not original to what John had written. And this shouldn't bother us so much. This is why we have manuscript witnesses. This is why we go back and look at the manuscript so that we can make our best understanding of what the original text said, because the King James Bible is not inspired. The New King James Bible is not inspired. In fact, no English translation is inspired. No translation in any language is inspired, not in Latin, not in German, not in Greek, or, well, the original was in Greek. The original manuscripts were inspired. And our job is to understand what those inspired manuscripts said. And this probably was not in the original manuscripts, therefore this is not inspired. But every other word is. It appears first in Latin, not in Greek. And it doesn't appear until 300 AD, which is pretty early. But it doesn't appear in Greek until at least 1215. And even this is only on the testimony of someone else. It doesn't appear physically until 1520. This little phrase is called the Johannine comma. 
Comma used to mean sentence or clause. So this is the additional clause in the Johannine text, in John's text. It was well known. It was a well-known controversy back in the time of the Reformers. Bruce Metzger writes about this. The comma probably originated as a piece of allegorical exegesis, which means that it was not supposed to be literally understood, but that as one of the commentators or interpreters read John's original words, they allegorized it. They tried to find the meaning behind the meaning, which is always a bad practice. So this was a piece of allegorical exegesis of the three witnesses and may have been written as a marginal gloss in a Latin manuscript. That means written in the margins, not in the original text. Whence, it was taken into the text of the old Latin Bible during the 5th century. Now you might ask, how the heck does that happen? It was written in the margins, not in the text. Well, that's where edits were written. When the original scribes would sit down and copy these texts, they did so by hand. They would have whole pages that they would write out in Greek or in Hebrew, and occasionally you would make an error because guess what? We're human. Rather than scrapping the whole page and writing it all over again, they would write in the margins the correction so that no other scribe would make that specific mistake. When it was copied again, that edit would be written back into the text. Problem, once again, is a lack of organization. This is also where interpreters' notes were written. So it's probable that one of these interpreters who was copying this from Greek into Latin wrote in the margins in Latin that there were also three witnesses in heaven. God the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. Now, guess what? This is true. There's nothing wrong with this doctrinally but it's not in the text. And that's not really John's point. His point is the witness here on earth. Now this gets inculcated into our tradition in what's called the textus receptus, which was the Latin word for the received text. This was a Greek text first compiled in 1516 by the man Erasmus. He was an excellent linguist, but a very poor Bible scholar. And he used seven different Greek manuscripts, two primary ones, to compile the entire New Testament. Most, like the critical text, will use upwards of 4,000 primary texts in order to get the best possible understanding using the best and oldest manuscripts. Not one of Erasmus's manuscripts came from before 1000 AD. All of them were new. Half of them weren't even Greek. Now in the first and second edition, the second edition is what uh, Luther first used to make his German Bible, this Johannine comma was absent. But one of the scholars of Erasmus's day took issue with Erasmus not including this Johannine comma, called him all sorts of names and called him stupid because he didn't understand that this, wasn't, that this was supposed to be in the Bible. And so Erasmus somewhat foolishly told him, if you can find one Greek manuscript that attests to that, I will put it in my Bible. And guess what? A couple years later, this guy comes back to Erasmus and says, we found it, we found it. And so he put it into his third edition of the Textus Receptus. 
And the third edition of the Textus Receptus was used to create the King James Version in 1611. This King James Version, which underwent edit after edit after edit, having about 75,000 alterations before it came to the one that we have today. So if anyone tells you the King James Version is the inspired word of God and nothing else is, which one of those hundreds of different versions of the King James Version? Now, even our Bibles, we want to understand that this is the inspired word of God, but it's gone through a process of understanding, and sometimes we get a better understanding. None of these changes change any of our doctrine, but we do want to understand the true word of God. And so when a text is not supposed to be in there, we don't want it to be in there, even if it's doctrinally true. But Erasmus had his doubts that this Greek manuscript that suddenly showed up in 1520, claiming to be from 1215, was real, and he wrote in the margins of the Textus Receptus 3rd edition that he believes Lee and Foy fabricated this document in order to satisfy his request of a Greek manuscript. So even Erasmus, at the time of publication, did not believe that this was present in the text. But guess what? It got printed and printed and printed and printed. The Catholic Church adopted it as its primary text, and then they declared by papal fiat that this is the inspired word of God, and anyone who contradicts that is a heretic. In other words, stop studying, just listen. Now for me, one of the best evidences that this is not in the original text is that not one of the church fathers ever cites this verse. There is no record that anyone within the first 1,000 years, besides the uh, Latin Bible that uh, Jerome translated, that anyone had ever heard of this verse. And it would have come in handy in the Council of Nicaea in 325, because that's where they were arguing over the Trinity. This is a very Trinitarian text, this edition. And if it was original to the Johannine manuscript, then the Council of Nicaea would have obviously used this to say that there are three and they are equal and they are in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. But guess what? That's not there. I'm sure they would have loved to have that there, but it wasn't. So all of that to say, trust your Bibles, but... Be willing to see that uh, the English translation is not the inspired word. The original manuscripts are. We want our English Bibles to reflect the original manuscripts as best as we can. All right, back to the credibility. We want to know that God's testimony is credible. 1 John 5.9 says, if, which is a first-class conditional meaning since, since we receive the testimony of men, this is taken for granted. In fact, we receive the testimony of men every day because it's not often, and in fact, it's today never occurs outside of Scripture, that we get the testimony of God directly on a certain issue. But guess what? Every day you hear somebody tell you something and you trust them. You believe them. Sometimes you don't. When you don't, you assume they're lying. Or stupid, but usually lying. <laughs> But if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. Now this is an a fortiori logical argument, or in the Hebrew, a kalwaiomer argument, meaning from the greater to the lesser. 
If you can believe this greater thing, this harder thing to believe, then you should, by all means, believe this easier thing to believe. It is far easier to believe the testimony of God than it is to believe the testimony of men. Men lie. God does not. Remember what John had stated as an issue earlier in the text, 1 John 2.19. They, being the antichrists who opposed the message of Christ, they went out from us. They departed from us. They were not really of us. If they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they are not of us. Heretics departed. They separated from the apostles. They separated from that original apostolic witness, bringing a different message that was not original to the gospel. This was the testimony of men, but guess what? The people listening to John's words in Ephesus are listening to the words spoken and written by a human being. So what's the difference? They're willing to listen to what John says, and they're willing to consider what Serintha says, but what is the difference with Paul? Or with John, the difference is that the testimony of God is his testimony. 1 Corinthians 3, 4, we see the same issue. Paul says to the Corinthians, when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? They're taking the witness of men. And when they hear the gospel preached, they are assuming this is the witness of men. But they're wrong in that. It's the witness of God. Paul says, what then is Apollos, and what is Paul? They are servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. These men came preaching the testimony of God. And so, yes, they're believing the words that men speak, but that's not their own testimony. It's God's testimony that they are sharing with them. John eighteen seventeen says, even in your law, it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. Jesus here is making an argument that even in cases of legalities, you have the testimony of two men to corroborate one another. Then you can trust that witness. But guess what? Even two witnesses can collaborate together and lie. Even three can collaborate together and lie. I mean, look at the U.S. government. They collaborate together and lie all the time. But here, God does not lie. Jesus the Christ does not lie. You have two perfect witnesses to this truth. In John 5.31, Jesus gives four different witnesses to who he is. He says, if I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. But there is another who testifies of me, and I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. He says, you have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. John the Baptist, a man, relayed God's testimony to mankind. Remember, it was God's testimony at Jesus' baptism that John identified Jesus in. But the testimony which I receive is not from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. We need the preaching of the gospel. We need men to point it out, but it's God's truth. The testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. Now remember, whose power did Jesus operate by when he was here on earth? By the third person of the Trinity, by the power of the Holy Spirit. He depended on God's power to do his miracles. This is a testimony of the Holy Spirit having remained with Christ through his ministry. 
That Jesus was able to do these things was a testimony that God approved of him. The Father who sent me, he has testified about me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form, and you do not have the word abiding in you, for you do not believe him who sent me. When did Jesus, or when did God, the Father, testify about Jesus? Well, he did so at the baptism. He spoke audibly from heaven. He did so as well at the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. He spoke audibly out of heaven to tell Jesus' disciples who were with him that this was his son in whom he was well-pleased and for them to listen to him. And God spoke again from heaven when Jesus arrived in Jerusalem the week before his crucifixion at the triumphal entry. And the people who heard it wondered, was this a clap of thunder? I guarantee you they heard the words that were spoken but wanted to chalk it up to natural occurrences, just to thunder. Was that thunder? We can hardly believe that the thunder is speaking to us. They didn't believe the witness of God. These are miracles that God is speaking to them audibly from heaven. This does not happen to us today. This was a unique witness in Jesus' day. And then he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. Now, this was a particular issue in Jesus' day with the Pharisees, but this is an issue even today, where we can venerate Scripture to such a high elevation that we canonize a text that is not inspired, like the King James Version, but we refuse to actually listen to what it's saying. We can hold it in such reverence that we won't set our coffee cup on top of our Bible. We bow to our Bibles. And you know what? There is excellent and wonderful truth in these Bibles, and they should be revered. But it's what's in them. It's what they say. It's the testimony that they give that is of, our, of importance. And this is what the Pharisees missed. They held the law and the word of God in such revere that they actually didn't care what God said. They didn't care that God's entire testimony pointed towards Jesus the Christ. This is what Jesus said at the end of his testimony, that the blood of all the prophets who died to give the word of God is on their hands because they have rejected their witness, because their witness points to Christ. And so 1 John 5, 9, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his son. Now, I don't think this is translated as well as it could be. If you look at the underlined text here, the is this is at the end of the clause in English, but it's actually the beginning of the clause in the Greek. Because everything that comes out of, after it is the this. So in the English, this phrase that comes before it and the phrase that comes after it is all the this. The testimony of God that he has testified concerning his son. He is building anticipation. We should be waiting for what is the testimony? What has he said concerning his son? What is this great truth that God is working into a climax here? And that is the one who believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. Well, again, what is this testimony? If we've believed it, we have, 
The one who believes in the Son of God has this testimony in himself. We've believed in the Son of God. What is this testimony that we have in ourselves? Then there are those who do not believe in God. They make him a liar. Oops. They do not believe God. Here, this is going back to the issue of our faith. Okay, they don't believe God. It's faith that overcomes the world in all situations. Here, the one who overcomes is the one that believes Jesus is the Son of God. The content of faith here is in the Son of God. The issue here is that they did not believe God. God's testimony is that his Son is his Son. That Jesus is the Christ and his Son. If they don't believe that, they believe God is a liar instead because they have not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his son. What is that testimony? Well, in 1 John 1.10, we get kind of a parallel verse. If you say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. In other words, if we deny our need for a savior, God's word is not in us. This one, if we deny God's provision of a savior, we call him a liar. These are two things that God has told us, and we can either believe him or not believe him. Faith is pretty simple. Do you believe what God has revealed? If yes, great, you're saved. If you believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose again, great, that's it. That's all it takes. Have you ever had someone come up and tell you, well, that's not saving faith. Saving faith is a deep commitment to Jesus Christ. Well, I don't find that in my scriptures. like going up to the gas station and them trying to sell you summer air versus winter air for your car tires. You've got to buy this premium summer air. It costs twice as much. You've got to get saving faith. It costs you everything. Faith is faith. It's not the quality of your faith. It's not your faith that saves you. It's the object of your faith. It's who you're believing. Do you believe Jesus or not? Don't make the issue your abilities. Make the issues Christ's. Is he able? Then you can have confidence. You are secure because this is the testimony. John finally hits it in verse 11. He has built so much anticipation. We want to know what this is. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. This is what God is telling us. Do we believe it or do we think he's a liar? It is not pious. It is not humble to think, oh, I haven't done enough. Oh, I'm just not that good a person. I don't know if I'll get to heaven. It's not about you. It's about God. Do you believe his testimony that his son is enough? Because he testifies that you are eternally secure. Eternal life isn't just a length, it's a quality. Eternal life, for it to end, would have to become death. We are identified with Christ. Do you remember that in order for us to die spiritually, Jesus himself would have to die spiritually? This is impossible. You cannot be yanked from the hands of Jesus, from the hands of God. This is God's testimony. Do you believe him? 1 John 5, 6, it is the spirit who testifies because the spirit is the truth. What is he testifying to? Your eternal life in Christ. 
There are three that testify. What are they testifying about? That you have eternal life. The Spirit, the Word of God that He inspired, tells you that you have eternal life. The water, Christ's baptism, His identification with you, tells you that you have eternal life. His blood that He shed on the cross is the means that He paid for your eternal life. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. Greater than anything that any person has ever told you is God's testimony to your eternal life. Testimony of God is this, that which he testified concerning his son, that the one who believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. If you have believed in the son of God, you have that eternal life in you. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar. If you don't believe this testimony, you believe God's lying about it because he clearly says it. Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his son. The testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life. And this life, this eternal life is in his son. Now, this is an excellent climax to John's book. Yeah, I know he's, he reaches a lot of climaxes here. But this is actually the end of his book. He's pushing towards the end. And he draws right back to the very beginning. And we realize why he wrote in the first place. First John 1 John 1.1, he says, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, and what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And you remember there's an odd parenthesis here. Or we might even wonder, why is John doing this? Well, it's kind of the same as what Paul is doing in, in uh, Ephesians 2, where in verse 5, he kind of tips his cards a little early to what he's going to tell us in verses 8 and 9, that salvation is by grace through faith, apart from works. He's just so excited to get to that point, he cannot wait. And he puts it in a parenthesis a little early the end of that parenthesis, he goes back to the main line and says, what we have seen and heard we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. What was that parenthesis? What could John not wait to reveal to us? He says that that life was manifested. It was made visible for us. It was sent down to earth. That we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. This is what John is telling us about. This is the hope that we have. A hope that absolutely will come to pass. 1 John 2.24, remember, as for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. The original gospel message. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. What was that original message? This is the promise which he made, which he himself made to us, eternal life. This isn't the content of the gospel that we believe to be saved, but this is what we are told is the effect of believing in the gospel. We're often just given one side of the coin, believe or burn in hell. Well, guess what? That's absolutely true too. But once again, that's not what John's talking about here. Doctrinally, true. 
Not the point. We believe for eternal life. It's not a turn or burn situation. It's a turn. Move your trust from self to God so that you will live in God. So that you will have this life in you. There's two sides to this coin. There's a severance between all humanity. You can only pass through one side of the void to the other. You can't go back. But sadly, not many will make that journey. Not many will shift their trust from self to Christ. John says, he who has the Son, remember the Son is that eternal life. Whoever has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. If you have not been born again through faith alone, in Christ alone, in his finished work on the cross, and in his resurrection that gives you life, then you do not possess eternal life. But if you have, no matter how you feel about it, no matter what your fruit is showing, no matter if you have faith in your faith, you can be confident that the testimony of God is true about your eternal life. This is where we place our assurance, not in ourselves, but in God's word about us. Now, 1 John 5.13 is sometimes taken, actually by many, to be the purpose statement for John's whole book. And it's not. It's convenient. It would be convenient in a way, if it were. It says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. 1 John 3.24 said, This is the commandment that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. 1 John 5.1 said, Whoever believes, in the, in, believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Okay, so we have believed in the name of the Son of God. So this is talking about us. So why is he writing these things? So that we may know we have eternal life. Well, let me ask you, after getting through verses 6 through 12, do you know that you have eternal life? Absolutely. So guess what? His purpose works. At least for me, I have confidence. I am sure in Christ. And so John's stated purpose here is effective. He accomplishes his goal. But there's four different possibilities for his purpose statement in this book. 1 John 1.4 says, These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. 1 John 2.1 says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. 1 John 2.26, These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. And 1 John 5.13, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, people try to take this one and make it the purpose statement because it conveniently parallels with John's gospel and his purpose statement, which is, these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And people want to make this clear distinction that the gospel of John is for the unbelievers to become believers. And the epistles of John is for believers to grow. 
Part of growth is assurance and confidence. A mature believer doesn't doubt his salvation. Doesn't mean this mature believer never has a bad day. But he is confident in God's testimony. But here's the issue. If the purpose statement is so that we might have confidence, then this must include everything that John has said in his book. And some of these things might shake our confidence. 1 John 2.11, the one who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Now, if you read that with the belief that, John's, that 1 John is about confidence and that we know we have salvation because we are confident in it, how many of us can say that we've never hated our brother or that even right now we don't have a tiff with someone and we'd rather just them not be here? This happens. The issue is if this is John's purpose statement, then this should shake our faith. But in John's argument, it shouldn't. So how does that comply? 1 John 2.15, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. This is about spiritual maturity, not our salvation. 1 John 3, 7, little children, make sure no one deceives you. How many of us have been deceived? How many of us have believed false doctrine? I have. I, I hesitate to say this, but I'm sure there's something I believe right now that's wrong. And I hope God corrects that. But when I discover that error, should I, have, should I not have confidence in the salvation that I thought I had yesterday? Because I was believing something wrong. This is not about assurance of salvation. These are not litmus tests for our salvation. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with the joy that we have in fellowship with God. And those things are hindrances to our joy. Hindrances to our fellowship. And we are encouraged to overcome them on the basis of our confidence that we can have in God's testimony. Not how well we're doing, but how well his son Jesus Christ did. And so 1 John 1, 4, I believe confidently, is the purpose statement for 1 John. We want joy. And if we want that joy, if we want to understand it, we have to understand fellowship with God. So here I've got this excellent little quote by David Anderson on faith's object. He says, do not put your faith in your fruit. Do not put your faith in your feelings. Do not put your faith in your faith. Your faith is only as good as its object. Put your faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. So the main idea this morning was God testifies not only to our salvation, but to the quality, security, and eternality of that gift. It is not pious, humble, or wise to question our position in Christ. Remember, to question that is to wonder whether or not God lied to you. That's not wise. It is arrogant and foolish to look to one's fruit, feelings, or even the quality of one's own fickle faith. It is the object of that faith that saves. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you so much for the gift of eternal life. And not only that we have it, but we can confidently have it. That we can stand on your testimony, that we can stand on the finished work of Christ and know absolutely that whatever may come, we are secure in Jesus Christ, your Son. And you have approved of him, therefore you have approved of us. We praise you in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.